Hey guys, and welcome back to Mind the Green Space, the podcast where we talk about all things adventure, sustainability, and mental health, and how they all somehow interconnect. This podcast is in collaboration with Powerful Parks. To find out more about them, check out the description below. Welcome back to Mind the Green Space. This week I am joined with the Broads. I realised I've called this meeting the Boards and not the Broads Authority podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope that I don't make that mistake again. Um, but I'm joined with Harry and Andrea today. So Andrea, if you'd like to introduce yourself, what it is that you do within the Broads Authority? Yeah, hi, I'm Andrea Kelly and I work obviously for the Broads Authority and I'm the Environment Policy Advisor. And that kind of involves, well, recently it's involved a lot of um, applying to get funding in. Uh, And we've been successful recently with a big Nature for Climate Fund. And I'll probably tell you more about that. So getting in money is an important part of my role, as well as delivering the projects and managing some of those projects um, and appointing people to, to help manage those projects. But also I create the policy and strategy. Uh, So I work with a team of specialists such as Harry, uh, we've also got on the call. Um, And we create, you know, the strategic visions, the directions, the the priorities that we want to be working on. But above all, really, I work in partnership with many organisations and land owners who manage and own the Broads. The Broads Authority is a very small landowning organisation. So it's really up to us to work with those who manage the land, who can make those changes. And I, I spend a lot of my time working with partners. That's awesome stuff. I actually talked to someone in a similar role yesterday from the Bragg and Beacons National Park. And as I was learning more about her job, I started to appreciate, I think, the Bracken Beacons more because I could understand then how much time and energy goes into just maintaining and making sure that it's the best it can be so I really do admire your job because I can imagine I really appreciate like how much goes into it and then when I'm going out to a national park that's not something I really think of I guess yeah it's I mean my role has been so broad ranging I've worked in the broads authority for over sort of 25 years now and over that time my role has developed from um, sort of starting out sampling water and understanding the sediment chemistry and looking at the small creatures that live in the water. Uh, and I, I take that f- further forward, looking at the policies to protect the, the water, the land, the land that influences the water quality and working through all the different organisations and businesses who are influencing the, you know, the, the quality of, of the National Park. So it's a really interesting role. Yeah, and I'm really excited to get into it today with you. Um, and then Harry, if you'd like to introduce yourself and what it is that you do within the National Park. Well, hello, I'm Harry Mack. I'm the um, Carbon Reduction Project Manager, which is basically my job is to find projects, kind of like Andrea does with the, as well, um, that support our journey towards being a net zero um, area. Uh, so that's everything from trying to work out how to electrify the boats that use the broads. You've got 8,000 boats on the broads at the moment. Um, along with large numbers of rowing boats, but obviously they don't need electrification. Um, I also work with looking kind of the landscapes. I work with Andrea on the Canopy project, that I think we'll talk about a bit more later, starting to look at what we can do around transport and um, how what tourists can do when they come to the park to try and have as low impact a holiday as possible and kind of tying all that together, um, as well as doing a lot of work internally. So we're doing a lot of work as an organization to reduce our own footprint. Um, which isn't that big in terms of kind of the overall area. I think if you were to, if you add up all the footprint of the broads as an area, the broads authority is well under 1% of the emissions, but we have to lead by example. So that means doing a lot of work on working out how to decarbonize equipment, our buildings, putting in solar panels, um, using biofuel as a stopgap where we don't have technology available to electrify things yet. But most of this job is looking at how you make things electric, essentially. Oh, wow. Amazing. Actually, I didn't know that. And it's really interesting to get into that, especially when you consider visitors towards the National Park. And then people who are living and working within the National Park, because that's something I realise is quite a huge factor in um, 
National Park Authority's jobs is trying to work in partnership with those people. I something I'm really interested in getting um, talking to you today, Harry. I guess about peatlands because yeah. peatlands is something that it's not something that I've ever thought about. I guess like I've grown up, I've known trees help in terms of climate change and the carbon dioxide, but peatlands, I'm pretty sure from the very brief knowledge I have in them, is kind of better in that way in terms of trees, but it's not so much talked about, if I'm right. Yeah, I think it's something people are getting more aware about, and you certainly hear more and more of it in kind of recent years. But I think that it's kind of they're harder to get your head around, perhaps, because people will live next to a forest, but they won't necessarily live next to a peatland unless they live in kind of one of the national parks where there is an awful lot of peat. Um, and when they've kind of been thought about, like in stories, people will like woods are often seen as the positive things, whereas um, sort of bogs and mires are often in stories sort of they're kind of like the gothic horror genre, which is kind of given quite a lot of bad connotations. So I think culturally they've been less seen as a good thing, but I think more and more people are waking up to just how valuable they are and just how beneficial they are. Yeah, I guess in terms of like agriculture as well, then like peatlands and agriculture kind of don't go hand in hand from what I know, but... I think, I mean, they were seen as unproductive, um, sort of they weren't seen as a place where people got food, um, which wasn't necessarily true. Um, certainly in kind of like Cambridge Fens, um, they used to support huge communities because people would hunt for food in them and um, they would fish, they would catch birds and that sort of thing. There was a lot of supplies. People built their houses with the reeds. But if you were looking at kind of quite a narrow view of agriculture and sort of growing wheat, for instance, that's a crop that developed in the Middle East, which doesn't have a vast amount of wetlands. So, of course, people sort of went, no, if we're having this one size fits all model of agriculture, you'll drain your peatlands. Um, but I think people are coming back to actually that isn't a long-term solution. Um, you'd start, if you drain peats, it vanishes very quickly. Um, if you go over to Home Fen, um, there's quite a famous post that was hammered into the ground when they first drained it and the top of it is now four meters above ground. Um, and there's all sorts of places over the world where people have done that. They've drained the peat and then they run out of soil and you basically run out of opportunity to farm. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is something that I feel like no one, unless they were to like really research into it, I don't really know anything about it I I don't know like it's something that I literally in the last couple of months have kind of come to understand I guess but even then not so much because it's quite hard to find information out there that is kind of dumbed down so it doesn't seem like super scientific and um, hard to consume I guess but maybe today would be a great way for people to find out more about that type of stuff and the stuff that your guys are doing so Andrea how did you get involved with the Broads Authority, um, National Park Authority? Um, well, I, I came to study at UEA, at the University of East Anglia, to do my degree. And I took some options around freshwater management, which led me to do some sort of field courses in the Broads. Um, and I think, you know, that was the foundation of it. And I think, you know, it, at the time when I was doing my A-levels, uh, there was this huge debate around the Broads and the Broads Authority had produced uh, a, you know, its latest strategy, which is called Loving the Broads to Death. Um, uh, there was a polarisation around conservation and navigation and recreation, and it was almost, almost like a, a battleground. Uh, and that really galvanised the energy in myself at that time as a young person wanting to get involved with a battle. Um, so I, I guess that got into my subconscious. So, you know, coming to East Anglia, it seemed natural for me to work within the broad. So I got a job out, as I said, doing, looking at water chemistry and sediment chemistry, and also looking at the aquatic plants. So I looked at the whole aquatic ecosystem. And through that, I recognized, you know, all the solutions that really led to um, <clears throat> managing land different uh, in a different way so there's a vast catchment that supplies the water 
that comes down into the broads. And we need to get the management of that land and the way we use water right through our houses and out into the wastewater and put the right amount of investment into the farming business and, and into that wastewater treatment system in order to benefit the downstream, which is the broads, which is the nation's uh, number one freshwater, largest freshwater resource, which has colossal amounts of biodiversity. So I think for me, it was recognising that, that so many things come together in the broads, so many of the challenges that the UK have in producing food, enjoying areas, uh, and, and finding a balance between conservation and and the use of the area came together. Um, so I've sort of stayed dedicated to that one area for the majority of my career so far. Oh, wow, that's amazing. This is why I love asking that question, because I always found that for a lot of people, this isn't quite just a job for them. It's something that they're really passionate about and something that they want. They've noticed something and they want to change it. And that's why they've gone into something like this, which I'm really interested by. And so what about you, Harry? How did you get involved? Um, so I've not been here as long as Andrea. I started with the Broads Authority um, four years ago. Um, my background isn't actually in kind of ecology or environment. Um, I came in as a project manager because the Broads Authority was setting up a partnership project with um, uh, peatland managers uh, across five countries in Europe. So I was brought in to manage that project and that process. Um, but kind of once you're in, it's sort of you realize really quickly just how much value there is in what you're doing and you get to work on things that are really important. So particularly the climate change angle, you're then getting to work on probably the most important issue of sort of the next 20 years and getting to it the, um, well, I want to say the coal face of that, but we're supposed to be doing away with coal faces. Uh, but getting to work on kind of really important issues that you can really care about and really work on, um, get like a lot of passion for, is something that's kind of kept me around and kept me going and got me to uh, really enjoy working here. And Yeah. Oh, that's amazing stuff. Um, that kind of segues into my next question, actually. So in terms of climate change and that being um, becoming more common and in conversation in and also people wanting to be more proactive, like governments and stuff. Um, Andrea, how have you found then since um, the conversation of climate change and how nature's um, role in that can help so much? Have you found it's been easier to get more opportunities um, and more funding? Um, so the majority of my conversations on climate change occur with farmers and land managers. So we've set up a Broads Land Managers Board to discuss these topics across the whole sort of farmland in the Broads. So 40% of the Broads, the majority of the land in the Broads is grassland. And that grassland is fairly extensively grazed and has been really to protect the landscape. Um, but it's a fairly drained landscape. So as we uh, in have introduced cattle, um, we've had to draw the water off because the river level is so much higher than the actual land level because there's been shrinkage over the decades of dry farming or dra farming that relies on drainage, that that soil has shrunk away, consolidated, got lower and lower in relation to the, the sea level. And of course, the sea level connects to the river level in the broads. It is one of the same. There's no lock system. So as climate warms and sea levels rise with the expansion of water, that sea level rise will come and translate through the rest of the broads. So the conversations I have with farmers are about that challenge and what we can do about it. Uh, and there is a huge um, opportunity in the broads, particularly with the, the peat soils we have and the carbon rich soils. So I've got a sort of fact here in terms of the sort of instant switch off that can be achieved by re-wetting the peat soils in the broads. So every 10 centimetres of water table depth reduction. Um, so if we switch off the pumps, and we allow the water table to increase by 10 centimetres, 
uh, and we continue to do that until we reach the, the surface of the soil. So the water table is at the same point of the level of the surface. This reduces the net warming or the global warming impact of that CO2 and methane emissions by three tonnes of carbon dioxide per hectare per year. Um, and that's instant. That happens, you know, if you're going to plant trees, it can take decades and decades for the trees to start really removing quantities of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So we've got an instant opportunity. And that's something the, that conversation is really important for us. Um, and farmers are interested in the economics associated with that. So we are working with a, a company who's developing a financial model. They're called Palladium. And we hope to be able to introduce private finance for farmers to get hold of new money to allow them to keep carbon in the land and to create new alternative crops. So I'm working on a new wetland cropping system to demonstrate to farmers how to go from a dry farming system into a wet farming system. Um, and I'm also working particularly with reed and sedge cutters to, to see how we can expand their industry because they cut the reed and sedge for roofs, uh, for houses, and that's an existing market that we would like to extend in the broad. So for me, it's all about working with the land managers to get their business models because they will not do things for free, get their business models to wrap around this climate change and to get advantages coming back to them. Oh, wow, that's amazing. I always find that in terms of farming, it's been around for so long that it's kind of like, it's been passed down and it's been the same for so long because it's what works and it's reliable and that's what brings in their money. So in terms of changing, and then also I feel like, especially within the media, a lot of, to, in farming they get it's a quite a polarized opinion I guess and a lot of people see farming as very bad and it, you're doing all this damage but there's it's nice to see now that there's more conversation around you can change it you can still benefit from farming and so can the climate which is really nice to see um, let's hope so it all depends on how much money comes in from the public purse and the private purse to make a new type of farming, a wetter farming, available for farmers. They can't do things for free. They are businesses. Yeah. They've got families. Uh, yeah. To feed. yeah. It'd be, it's quite, um, I think when I'm looking at the media and in terms of climate change, a lot of this stuff doesn't seem to be discussed. So there's not a lot of knowledge around it and how it can be transformed. So it'd be really nice now, especially as the UK is sort of, steam train ahead in terms of climate change to really understand how beneficial it can be for them to start investing in this type of stuff rather than in terms of not, not rather on but alongside all of the mainstream stuff that we see yeah absolutely i, th I think uh, one of the things that um really switches people's minds into this is recognizing what services nature provides for us clean water purified air that you know moves through woodlands and gets uh, the particulates removed from it um what else yeah, drinking water i've talked about that water stored within floodplains so it doesn't rush down the rivers and affect people's roads or houses so it's layers and layers of stuff so if we take care of nature and that has an economic value and we're just beginning to monetize that it's not, not just that Treasury can continue to have the justification to invest, so the government, but also for private companies to put investment in because it makes long-term sense not to um, create impacts by the way we manage land, but actually to create solutions. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see actually how that unfolds in the future. Um, in terms then of reaching net zero, what are some of the key obstacles that you are facing to achieve this? But then what is also exciting you when you're trying to achieve net zero? Well, I'm sure Harry's got more to add on this from the whole strategy. Um, so, for, so for me right now, I am fully focused on 
preparing 13 sites in the Broads with private and uh, conservation landowners for restoration to raise that water level, to have that instant switch off of those greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere. That is incredibly powerful. Not everywhere can do that because they don't have these deep peat soils. Uh, lots of the peat has already disappeared from the fens um, through historic drainage, and it will take a long time to get that back. But in the broads, we've got these deep and oxidised peats, and they could, you know, instantly be um, reversing that climate. So that's the most exciting thing. Uh, and I want, you know, farmers to remain on the land, uh, and I want the landscape to evolve to keep up with the climate threats and I want that to be positive so you know we often think about climate change as a very very negative thing and it is it, it will be negative um, in lots of places in the broads and we've got a lot of challenges because our our land level is so much lower than the sea so you know it doesn't take a genius to recognize the threats that but if landowners can adapt in some areas there could be a livelihood going forward that could benefit um, surrounding populations as well as, as nature and provide a sustained income by carbon companies wanting to invest um, in the carbon credits. Wow. Yeah. What about you, Harry? Um, I think the biggest obstacles are kind of the obstacles you'd see in many rural economies. So in terms of we have 7 million visitors a year, um, and I think that's increased quite sharply in the last couple of years with people not taking international holidays. There's been a big coming back to domestic tourism, which is already good for the planet in terms of people traveling a couple of hundred miles to visit the broads is uh, already a big gain over them flying several thousand miles to visit an overseas destination. Um, but that comes with a huge travel footprint, um, which is something we have to deal with and um it also comes with kind of all the next pressures that you see in lots of areas around sort of tourism pressures overcrowding of certain spots um but in terms of opportunities i think the thing that's really exciting is that local businesses and local people are really enthusiastic about doing this so you've got the energy for the change you just sort of have to work out how to do it which then feeds back to the challenges because you're trying to change systems so we're doing work at the moment on looking at how you can change our um, higher cruiser industry which is almost all diesel powered to being electric and you you've got the technology you can work out okay so we need these this many batteries in a boat then you work out you need to charge those batteries and you start digging into the electricity system locally and then you start learning that rural electricity systems aren't currently built for that level of power output so you start having to look around for new power sources and new ways of managing that power source. Um, but I think once we do it, and I think we will do it, it then starts giving models you can roll out to people. You can really inspire people. In particular, I think one of the very exciting things, that's almost a captive audience of 7 million people you can go to. This is something you can change. These are the different ways you can do things. These are things you can take home and change your everyday life with as well and take sort of that appreciation for that very special but quite vulnerable landscape and use it to kind of drive people to say, yes, we want to make the change. This is worth changing things in our lives to save. It's kind of where we've really got the opportunity and it's really quite exciting. Yeah, it's exciting, but I can also understand how difficult that can be because that comes down to like a personal cultural change. And the reason we are the way we are is because of convenience. And then so if it was just to take public transport to a national park, sometimes that can be a lot less inconvenient than if it was to be to drive the car. So I guess it would kind of be to try and encourage people to change their way of thinking by giving examples of like, look, this is how you can do it. It's just as, e well, maybe not just as easy, but look at the benefits that come from that. Which I think is, it'd be very nice, especially in terms of like visitors coming to the park and just them being more mindful when they come into the park as well and how they get there. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's a tough sell in some regards. People are very used to doing things in a certain way. But just in terms of, say, transport, um, I use the example, if you come by public transport, you don't have to plan everything in a circle. You don't have to um, finish where you start off. So you might say in the broads, if you want to go 
for a walk. If you take your car, you're going to be forced to walk back to where your car is. If you take the bus, you can say start in Loddon and then just walk back towards Norwich and you're not tied up in that um, circle. It isn't easy, particularly if, say, where someone is starting from in the first place isn't particularly convenient for public transport. Or there's also, there's also a lot of talk about the last mile challenge. So you might be able to get a train to within, say, a mile of where you want to go, but then you don't you can't carry your suitcase for that last mile. So how do you make those linkages and get people to link up um, in that way? But I think it is also, if we can make it work, it will make holidays better. It will make the visitor experience better because I don't think anyone enjoys when it's the start of the summer holiday and they're starting a summer holiday in a traffic jam looking out at a fairly ugly road when they could be on a train looking at the countryside and relaxed and well maybe yeah. reading a book rather than trying to negotiate their way around a giant roundabout or something yeah and there's nothing worse as well when you're trying to find a parking space because it especially in national parks when during the summer they're just overrun with cars and then a lot of the times you can't go to places you planned on because you can't park your car there but say if there was public transport that um like risk is just taken out, I guess. Yeah. 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 I think yeah. it could, it's just sort of a really stress free, free way to start the holiday, but we have to make it work. It's always with climate change, you always have two aspects. You have the technology, so you have to have the train that actually takes you where you want to go. And then that also has to go hand in hand with the behavior. You have to persuade people that that's the way they want to do it. And you also have to listen to people, kind of like what do they want the technology to do for them? For them to be able to make that change yeah 100 percent um in terms then of the broads i saw that it's home to a quarter of the uk's rarest species can you tell us a little bit about how it's so rich in this wildlife and what some of the benefits are for having such a wild population um big population of rare species yeah um so this is something that we looked at um, to, to, uh, it was called a biodiversity audit and um, we worked with the University of East Anglia and they catalogued all the species records that mainly had been collected by amateur naturalists um, bird records moths beetles um, and we recognized you know just how many records millions and millions of records had been collected and we we found some real hot spots and they were all in the wetland area and then we looked at that across the whole of the country and we looked at all of the wetland hot spots um, that existed and we worked out that we had some of the the most uh, rich wetland uh, species uh, density of species and rarity of species in the whole of the country so um, some of the reasons for that, well, you know, wetlands themselves are really rare, have been almost all drained from the whole of the UK and across the globe. We've lost 75 percent of them. So very little of that habitat remains. So with the disappearance of the habitat as being the disappearance of the species, it's, it's pretty obvious. Uh, so the ones that are left are pretty rare now. The habitats and the species making making them inherently rare so um i think that really stacks the importance of the broads so we've also got lots of lots of different types of habitats we've got um drainage ditches or, or dikes as we call them um and they're managed in a certain way and they've got a certain number of species a certain assemblages of uh, late successional, i.e. they're not cleared out very often, uh, and ditches with really good water quality, ditches with brackish water or slightly more saline water. So we've got all these little niches in each of the uh, freshwater and saline habitats. We've got lakes, we've got fens, uh, we've got reed beds, um, we've got wet woodlands. So all of those habitats have resulted uh, over many, many years of decades of management uh, um, and evolution to co-evolve these amazing species. So we've got uh, people may, might know the swallowtail butterfly, and that's the only place in the UK where that occurs. So that requires open reed bed, uh, requires management. 
Um, so some of the benefits of having such rare uh, species is that you've got these iconic um, species and they drive your habitat management. So they provide the very reasons to continue to manage these habitats in the way that we do. So if we didn't manage the fens, the trees would just simply come in and take over and it would become eventually over a number of decades a wet woodland and swallowtail butterflies and, and their caterpillars will not live in wet woodland. Um, the milk parsley plants that the swallowtail butterflies eat will not flourish within that closed dark canopy. Um, they need that open, open habitat to forage and the light for the milk parsley plants to grow. So I think having some of these rarities has really directed the activities uh, that occur. And across, across the whole of the landscape, one of the things that we have uh, and many other places don't are colossal numbers of wintering birds that come into our estuary of Braden Water. Um, and the wet features that have been uh, maintained in the winter and then on into the spring to allow breeding waders to, to occur successfully. That's another really good emphasis. So all of these little threads feed through into the conversations we have with farmers and land managers to protect those species. So by having rarity means that the, the conservation is much more important and, and much more carefully done. Yeah, it's really exciting, I guess, as well, to have um, so many rare species, because I think um, what's heartbreaking now is so many national parks are reporting on how much their wildlife has decreased over the years and how difficult it is to just start re rewilding these projects. And it's um, a big job, but I guess you guys having um, such richness in these rare species and wildlife, it, it can be quite exciting to work with as well and then and make sure that these species have a great place to live and thrive. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even though we've got a lot of rarity that remains, there's still much more to be done in the broads. I've already talked about the amount of nutrients and pollution that comes in through the waterways and the intensely managed catchment that supplies the, the broads. Um, you know, intensive agriculture, lots of people, growing populations, lots of visitors. So all of that uh, has resulted in degradation of the, the rivers. If you get, come and you boat in the broads, you will see, for the majority, a lot of green water. And that green water is not supporting um, the biodiversity that it could do. So there is a huge potential to still continue to improve these habitats and safeguard them on into the future. So even though we've got a lot of richness, and you will come to, if you come to the broads, you know, it absolutely stands out. You can see all the wildlife. It's very, very obvious. The bittern, the heron, the, the marsh harrier, the swallowtail butterfly, the Norfolk hawker, dragonfly. So all of that is, is very evident for people passing through. Um, but it could be so much richer. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that remains our aim. Yeah, I'm really excited to see how this develops over the years then. Harry, can you, you mentioned earlier about the Canopy project. Can you talk a bit about what that is? Yeah, so um, Canopy stands for Creating a New Approach to Peatland Ecosystems. Um, it's a bit of a mouthful. Um, um, so one of the things about the sort of the peatlands we have in the broads is that they're not, although they're very unique and special, kind of the underlying problem Kind of low-lying landscapes which have been drained for agriculture is kind of mirrored across the continent um so the broads authority formed a partnership um with partners in four other countries we've got partners in belgium the netherlands germany and denmark um to really come together and it's really about changing the approach and the way they're seen so at the moment um land policy so under the common agricultural policy um you were essentially paid to drain your peatlands it had the perception that they didn't have much value as a wetland, sort of it might be useful for species, but there wasn't necessarily a wider societal value. And it's about changing that to appreciate that um, the carbon storage is obviously a huge value in itself. Um, the water storage function, Andrea mentioned, kind of preventing flooding, um, which is particularly topical when you think about sort of in Europe it, last year with the really devastating floods in Germany in part made worse because of the damage that's been done to kind of the 
catchment where you've lost all that natural function of storing the water. It's also true in the UK where I've got an aunt and uncle who live in York who um, often have to pump out their basement because the water just rushes off the moors and floods into York down the rivers there. Um, so it's sort of changing that approach. The other approach is also it's quite common in Europe and in the UK still for a lot of what's sold as compost in supermarkets to actually just be excavated peat. You drain a peatland um, and you then cut it out of the ground, you bag it up, you label it as compost and it's used to grow almost all the plants you buy to plant in your garden. Um, so it's about emphasizing that value, looking for alternatives. So one of the things that's been developed in Germany, we've been able to bring to the other countries is polluticulture, which is essentially wet farming. It's you re-wet your land and then you find something you can farm there that's valuable. So people are farming um, sphagnum mosses, which are basically, it's it should be a wild bog plant. It should dominate all the bogs in the UK and across Europe, um, which can be used for as a replacement for harvested peat in growing plants. Um, we've got a trial site in the Broads, which Andrew has been working on and set up and has set up with a local farmer, which is trialing growing reed. So that's actually one of the oldest forms of wetland farming is growing reed to thatch houses. Every thatched house you see is a product of farming on wet soils, most of which will be peat. But in the UK, we import 85% of that. So it's really interesting if we can expand the amount of reed that is grown in the Broads because it's a local natural product that goes towards maintaining the cultural heritage of the area. Um, also looking at um, other forms of biomass, so things like typhalatifolia or reed mace, which you're probably familiar with. If you've ever been near sort of a pond or lake that has kind of a reed around the edge with kind of a brown sausage at the top of it, that's um, typhalatifolia. You can use that for kind of anything where you need a biomass fiber, so replacement plastic type things if you want like biodegradable cutlery or plates for a picnic. Um, it can be used to insulate houses. There's um, someone in Germany who's essentially built their entire house out of them. So it's kind of lots of these really exciting products where if you start looking at peatlands in a different way, you can do something quite interesting. I think one of the interesting facts about these wetlands is they get seen as being unproductive. But if you actually just measure the amount of biomass that comes off a wetland compared to a drained land, are actually more productive and you can grow more material. It's just a question of can you find a use for that material? Can you make money for the farmer? Because with the amount of rewetting of um, peatlands that has to be done across Europe, it won't all be done as nature conservation. It will have to be done on an economic basis as well. And there will have to be farming on these landscapes. Yeah, I completely understand that. But it is in a way kind of sad that we can't, we have to have a use for every, everything, every piece of land there is, and we have to kind of financially benefit from it. We can't just say, this peatland is great for the environment. We should just leave it there. It, there has to be a purpose to it, I guess. Uh, I think I'd like to see kind of like a cultural shift, but I can also understand that a lot of people do rely on the land and we do, um, we're only a small island, we have to rely on the land, but I'm not sure how you feel about that. I mean, so there's, there's a lot of work going on around sort of, um how we can pay for it to be as a complete rewilding. So people can buy sort of blue credits and carbon credits, which can be an alternative form of income. I think also if you're doing this in a sensitive way, it does have huge benefits for wildlife. Um, so if you, like there's been studies in these wetland farm sites and they do find an abundance of species that are lost in drain sites. They're not a fully rewilded site, but it can bring benefits for nature. Um, as well at the same time it doesn't just it's not an either or you can yeah. be sensitive to nature and how to do it but I do agree we do want as much rewilding as possible particularly in these special landscapes and it is going to be about finding the balance and making as much room for nature as possible yeah now I was just going to add to that if I may um you know who who are we when we talk about we uh, you know if the nation, uh, the voters wish to see uh, public money being invested in um, systems that do protect nature and all these other services, then the public really need to say that much more. And I think maybe this podcast is really useful in getting that out there. Uh, you know, um, essentially our politicians who create policy and allow Treasury to put money elsewhere other than you know, 
in, in the conventional sense that we have at the moment, if we want to increase the money that goes towards land managers providing, you know, services for flood storage or carbon build or nature, then the voters need to say that because at the moment there, there simply is not enough funding to allow the public purse to extend these nature areas and to pay farmers wholly for compensating for loss of crops. So clearly they do need to continue to find business uh, uses for new products, uh, wetland products. But it'd be lovely if some landowners, if they were liberated from having to sell things, uh, they would certainly jump at the chance, particularly how challenging it is to you know, manage wetlands going forward with, with climate change challenges. They would perhaps like to incorporate much more water on their land and grow, grow these wetland crops. So I don't think there's a lack of desire from the farmers, but there's certainly a lack of funding uh, and that has to be long-term funding uh, because putting water on your land changes its value uh, and that asset is a long-term uh, value for the farm. And often it's not just the individual farmer and the family. There's a, a whole system of, of trust, the trusts and complicated farming business. Uh, so there's not, it's not a simple solution. Um, but certainly uh, by voters saying that they would like to, government to invest would be an incredible step forward. Yeah, that's something I found that is just a huge theme and kind of everyone that I've talked to, whether it be national parks or just people that are working on something to do with sustainability and climate change, it all comes down to funding because there isn't, I guess, because it's a new topic of conversation so much as it's become so mainstream now that there's so many things, um, so many amazing ideas out there and so many ways that we can benefit and move towards climate action. But the one threat and um, stopping it all really is just funding because there's not enough funding in it. I guess it's because a lot of people, um, in terms of like public funding as well, a lot of people want to see a return in that, I guess, which obviously you would get a return with, in, in investing in climate action, but I don't know. It just, it just, that's one thing that really gets me is the lack of funding. And I guess that's kind of down to a lack of education as well. If a lot of people, not a lot of people are going out of their way to look into all this stuff and researching into it, they don't understand what's out there. And then I guess public pressure is kind of not so much because they don't, the public don't understand what's going out there to help. Yeah, you're, you're right. It is complicated and it's up to us. To, to make it as simple as possible. We've got certain choices, uh, and if the public value certain things, they need to guarantee that that funding can come through to those who own the land and can make those changes on our, be our behalf. Yeah. Um, kind of, this kind of segues quite nicely then. Um, taking into consider consideration all the amazing projects that you have going on, what would the, what does your ideal future for the national park look like say in the next 10 years okay uh, for, for me it's um developing the partnership that we've got with the farmers much more i see us working from bottom-up perspective you know really engaging with farmers on the direction of travel we, we develop a vision with everyone for the national park and that comes in the form of a, of a plan a five-year plan so we want to work continued through that um and i th I, th I think for us going forward are because we own such a small proportion of the national park and really so do the conservation organizations own such a small proportion and we've done so much work on those core nature areas already really to extend the value and the services for the population, all these visitors coming, we need it, the whole of the National Park to work much, much harder within the National Park and outside of the National Park. So the private landowners who are able to make those changes, we need to work with them to create the projects and the impetus and the willingness and we need to get the long-term funding to come through 
from the private and the public fi finance and that to blend really nicely, really simply to allow them to get, uh, you know, the benefits of these new funding regimes. And I think we need to bring that together in all the national parks, all the protected landscapes that cover 25% of the UK's land. And government have got a target of 30% uh, of the land in really good condition, working for ecosystems, working for nature, working for climate by 2030. So it's 30 by, th by 2030. So that's a really good aspiration for the parks. And I think it can only come by local partners working together. Yeah. That, yeah. Another thing that I've only recently learned as well is like, you're a national park authority, but you don't have authority over all the land in terms of complete authority to make those changes. You have to work and you have to rely on other people to understand the work that you're doing, I guess, and put that message across of why what you're doing is so beneficial to them and to the environment to make that change happen. And I think it is important to recognise when it comes to all, all these aspects is um, mitigating climate change isn't something to be scared of because all this will make it a better place. So kind of if you think kind of what in 10 years time, if we achieve all these targets, you'll have a much quieter place. So if you're out on a boat, it'll it will have probably have an electric motor, you'll be able to hear the birds, you'll be able to appreciate the nature much more, there'll be more nature, because if we rebuilt more river margins and have more spaces for these natures, nature, you'll go back to seeing some of the things we used to see in the past, because I think people understand that we have gone backwards over the past decades. Um, if you read some of the, go back to the Arthur Ransom stories that were set in the 30s, where you could catch eels for your dinner by just throwing a t-shirt over the side and cutting holes in it, you start going back towards that sort of world where you have something you can appreciate. Um, people will be hopefully able to get out and about more. I think we've all appreciated green spaces in the last two years when perhaps we haven't been able to do so many things indoors. Having that access and we can make that, hopefully make that access better, more people on bicycles and walking about. And really, I think it is a really positive thing. I think it's one of the messages that gets lost. People get look at climate change and they think this is going to make the world worse but if we adapt and mitigate and all these make all these changes we want to make it will make the parks a much nicer place to be in i think yeah it's also very difficult to understand just what it can look like because there's so much information out there and so many different moving parts and then also political bias as well mixed in with that so you're not really understanding like the true idea of what the future could look like in terms of climate change and um you know you've got movies now like don't look up which is about that um and how they paint certain parts of the public i'm not sure if you've guys seen that on netflix leonardo DiCaprio. oh it's um this is a movie and it's about a meteor coming down to earth and they're going to die but then it's also it's a it's a metaphor for climate change really bris how um politics is so intertwined with it that in the end spoiler alert if you, if you can, i don't want to spoil this yeah, actually I, I have seen this i'm hoping it's not a metaphor for climate change in the long run that would be very yeah depressing. yeah I, I don't really want to spoil it Andrew, if you don't mind but um, <laughs> in the end the meteor hits and then the world is wiped out sorry guys for spoiling that but <laughs> but it just seems like that is where we are going to go because there's so much misinformation out there but also so much out there that it's hard to understand and a lot of people are really confused by it and then public pressure isn't so hard on the government when you think about it because we don't fully understand it I guess. Yeah I mean I've got to say from where we are now if we had you know a really big flood event which we've had in the past in the broad is not new um, but if we had more and more and more of those and um then you know farmers couldn't respond to that because there was no fund there to allow them to grow these wet crops to, uh, and, and have more sort of saline farming and, and those sorts of things it, it would be a bit of a meteor disaster I, I think so it's about putting in the systems um, to allow people to adapt and we're not there yet there is a lot more we need to do yeah um coming to a bit of a close um a close end how can visitors to the park actively help in protecting and improving the landscape 
I think, you know, visitors, as Harry said, a lot of them come by walking, but a lot use boats. And I think, you know, by visitors wanting quality, which they do, and wanting that quiet experience, which they need, um, I think that will change things. You know, they by booking out those electric boats uh, and really demanding the change um, associated with a quality experience that will allow these businesses to invest so by visitors coming uh, and expecting a certain experience which i think they do will in itself change um uh the, the process and the quality associated with with that um i don't know harry what else i think I think it's lots of things we've already discussed. So think about how you come, coming by public transport if you can. But also it is about seeking out those local businesses. Um, it's quite a nice example. Um, if you go into a pub and you buy a pint of local beer, you have a third of the footprint for that beer as if you go and were to buy, say, some um, Carlsberg or something imported from Europe. So it's kind of making sure you're eating seasonally and locally and making sure there is money going into businesses so they are able to invest and learning about what they're doing. And then I think also, particularly for the broads who are so vulnerable, um, the main thing visitors can do is push for that kind of wider change. Um, because if the broads goes to net zero, but the rest of the country doesn't, it's, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. It's about everyone making that change together. Yeah. That's great. Thank you guys so much for today. I've learned a lot. Um, it's been very eye-opening, actually, and I hope some listeners get that. But I do feel like we have barely scratched the surface on what you guys are doing. So is there um, somewhere that people can find out more information about the work you were doing? I think most of our information is on the website. If you delve into the various projects that we've talked about, um, so... Uh, we've got the Canapé website, which has got a load of information on peatlands, uh, the amount of carbon that's stored, the stuff that we're doing to mitigate. Uh, we've got Farming and Protected Landscapes that talks about some of the grants we're giving out to farmers for that innovative change. And we've also got information on water quality uh, and boating, safe access and you know stuff you can do. But Harry, you've got some information about sort of climate change are coming haven't you and what people can do themselves to make a difference i don't know if that's up and ready at the moment no i don't think that's available yet we will have in the near future we've been doing a lot of work to study kind of where all the carbon footprints in the broad come from and what the impacts are um i think if you the key words is if you google broad authority projects you find a list of all our projects that are going on if you google um uh, Canapé Project Pete, that should take you to the Canapé Project website. Um, and if you want to get involved with helping us, if you Google Broads Authority Volunteer, that will take us to our volunteering page with all the opportunities there. Amazing stuff. I'll have it all linked below for people to easily find as well. But thank you guys so much for today. I really learned a lot and I'm hoping that other people have learned from you guys. And I'm really interested now to see more from the Broads Authority and what you guys are doing. And this made me want to visit because I, I haven't been yet. So. Broads are lovely in winter. Oh, really? Ooh. Yes. Any, any season. Look forward to seeing you. Yeah. Yes. Thank you guys so much. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode. There are new episodes every Thursday. And if you want to keep up to date with the Mind the Green Space outside of the podcast, make sure you check us out on Instagram at Mind the Green Space. There'll be a link in the description. <laughs>